I'm gonna eat your butt. Hey, Hello? hey, Who is hey! This? Open your mouth. I'm gonna spit in it. Hey, I'm hey! A- oh God! Billy! No. Billy! Agnes! Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> Jesus Christ! Yep. Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare Christmas Edition. Yeah, our our Christmas episode, which, yeah, you weren't fucking kidding when you said you were going to start putting me through the ringer, because this one is a big departure from what we've been doing. Oh, yeah, so this week we are going to be discussing 1974's classic Black Christmas. So before we get to that, let's do the usual and discuss what we have been taking in lately that is horror-related. So, Derek. Let's start with you. What horror-related stuff have you been indulging in lately? So I know I brought them up in a past episode. Um, I can't remember which one, but I have been watching Another Dirty Room on YouTube Uh, because... Christ! Oh, yeah. They Uh. have started a new series, which I guess could be like a spinoff because they had season one and two. This one's called Another Dirty Room, Niagara Falls. And at the time of this recording, I think there are two or three episodes. What does Niagara Falls have to do with Dirty Rooms? They're just going to Niagara Falls falls and finding the like worst motels in Niagara Falls and Ugh. boy howdy I watched uh, episode 2 the other night and it is especially disgusting and horrifying the room that they find there again it's not necessarily horror driven it's more kind of a comedy no. show this is worse. This is so much worse than a fucking horror movie to me. Oh, yeah. This is like real life horror to the max. If, you know, the idea of staying in a hotel room that is disgusting and has bugs and has shit underneath the surface that would make your skin crawl. This is kind of one of those shows. I have a very big tolerance for like seeing disgusting things on my screen. It doesn't bother me too much. There were moments in episode two, and this is a fucking YouTube show, moments of episode too that I started gagging on especially like what they find in the shower you'll know what I'm talking about if you watch episode 2 Niagara Falls it is kind of one of my weird fears of staying in a hotel room or a motel room and then you know bringing back bed bugs with me or finding an, a mysterious wet spot in the sheets I'm, I laid in and I have no, no idea what that is Mm-mm. I think I brought this up last time I talked about another dirty room but surprising amount of people I'm convinced and so is our buddy Nowacki who is on her house episode we We are convinced that people rent these rooms out for piss parties because the amount of piss they find in these rooms is amazing, like all across the country. They find that more often than anything else. It's either piss parties or it's unfortunately like hardcore drug users who just pass out in the stupor and then piss themselves. And it's just that over and over and over and over with dozens of people. I don't know, but just uh, no, no, thank you. Yeah. So if you're curious, Another Dirty Room, it's done by a filmmaker named Dan Bell and he actually has an interesting series called the Dead Mall series where he goes to abandoned shopping malls and like films around them which is also very That sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, that sounds interesting. But his stuff is all on YouTube. I think it's under the channel This Is Dan Bell but you can easily just search Another Dirty Room Dan Bell or Dead Mall Dan Bell and find all his stuff on YouTube. Some other stuff I've been catching up on one of our favorite podcasts from the last podcast network uh, Wizard and the Bruiser which 
just kind of like a pop culture nerd podcast. They cover everything. One of the episodes I recently just caught up on was one that they had back in October on uh, Junji Ito, Yeah, which I am now going to try and get some of his material and read it. Just Google him, J-U-N-J-I space I-T-O and just image search it and get ready for some weird fucked up images to appear on your computer, specifically like stuff with people's faces made of spirals. One guy's face is all pimples and he's popping them all at the same time. All this dark, nightmarish, esoteric, eldritch Japanese abominations. So I came across the movie Uzumaki years and years ago, which is the one about spirals and everybody becoming obsessed with the spiral. A lot of people regard that as like Junji Ito's best story. Yeah. I came across that movie years ago and I knew it was based on an anime, but I didn't dig deep into that. I just remember the movie being kind of wild, but more and more as the years have gone on, I've heard more about Junji Ito. And after listening to that episode several months back, I actually ordered that new, nice, hardbound graphic collection of Uzumaki. And I'm going to read through it, and then I might get the same exact edition of Gyo and Tomei. That's kind of what I want to do, too. Yeah, I found all of his stuff digitally, and I'm going to kind of read through everything from there. But I went ahead and just get Uzumaki because it's cheap. It's 15 bucks for that really nice thick hardbound edition yeah and the stories are just so creative and nuts that one that they're talking about i forget which one it was where people just disappear and then reappear dead or something and it was becoming like a global phenomenon and people were starting to freak out I forget the name of the story, and I might be completely butchering it, but there was something like that that they had talked about on Wizard and Bruiser. If you want a good idea about Junji Ito and you don't necessarily, you're, you're a little timid about looking up the images or looking up about him, um, which I understand because it's, it's intense. It's yeah. intense. It's intense, pretty horrific artwork. Go listen to Wizard and the Bruiser's episode on Junji Ito. They do a good job of describing who he is, where he came from. They kind of do a little bit of his biography, and then they do a great job job of just describing his artwork and his stories and what they're about. So uh, shout outs to uh, Holden and Jake over at Wizard and the Bruiser. They did a great job with that episode. And going back into the comics aspect, I have started digging a little bit more into my comics and DC recently, for all of their faults, has made a new imprint or label under their DC black label called Hill House Comics. I know what you're about to talk about. Yep. The person who's running this, so I guess is like the executive editor or whatever, is Joe Hill. If you don't know who Joe Hill is, he is a horror writer, pretty well known, has a pretty extensive bibliography. In comics, he wrote the Lock and Key series, but he also has a couple novels such as Horns, NOS4A2, which is Nosferatu. I know both of those have gotten adaptations. I think Horns was a movie and Nosferatu is a TV series. Correct. And then like he, he just put out a book called The Fireman, which which I think is also horror related. And he has another one coming out called Up the Chimney Down. But all his stuff is pretty much either horror related or horror adjacent thrillers. But these DC comics, Hill House comics, they are all horror comics. It is a horror label, basically. The debut story that he had is Basket Full of Heads, which is written by Hill himself. I've only read the first issue and I am very intrigued. I know it has something to do with like the act of beheading and old Celtic... uh, 
uh, lore, I think, or something like that. There's still a lot of table setting going on in the first issue, so I'm not 100% sure where the direction it's going, but it's interesting. I also read the first issue of The Dollhouse Family, which is also under the Hill House comics, which is all about basically a haunted dollhouse, and the little girl in the family gets this haunted dollhouse. There's a couple other comics coming out that I, I are either out and I haven't read yet or are on the way. Before we leave Joe Hill, first of all, you do know he's Stephen King's son, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. You didn't mention that, so I didn't know if like you were aware of that. I, w- I, I was putting up the, the alley-oop for you to, to dunk it in. Okay, my bad. I, I should have jumped in earlier. I just didn't want to interrupt you. But yeah, his novel Heart-Shaped Box is fantastic. So for anybody that has not checked that out, check it out. The Heart-Shaped Box is solid. Yeah. Other comics that are either out and I just haven't read yet or are on the way. Uh, one is called The Low, Low Woods. Another is called Daphne Burn. Another one is called Plunge. Each of these are, they're all horror-related comics. And there's actually an interesting serialized mini-comic at the back of each of these comics called Sea Dogs. And it's in the serialized backup story, Sea Dogs is about the American Revolution. Basically, I think using werewolves to like attack the British. And okay. I've only read part one and two because I've only read the first issues of Basketful Heads and the Dollhouse Family, which was part one and two of Sea Dogs. I love this idea. I'm glad DC is doing this. I am all about this renaissance of horror and comic books. It's all solid. And so, yeah, check out Hill House Comics if that's floating your boat. And other than that, that's all I got. I, I don't mean to date our podcast too much, but I am now aboard the Resident Evil 3 remake hype train. I got to wait a few more months for that. Yeah, I've still got to get around to playing too. So, womp womp. So I have been pretty busy with work. This time of the year is always kind of rough. So this is all I have watched up to now, which just for listeners, this is still only the first week of December. So I've still got a ways to go to catch up on some last minute end of the year stuff. On that note, the second remake of Black Christmas actually comes out this next weekend. I was kind of sort of hoping it would be out before we did this podcast. um, But alas, time is what it is. So maybe, you know, if I get a chance to see it, there will be another mini episode or something like that but either way i checked out the scream factory release of 1988's version of the blob by chuck russell i got it a while back when it first came out but just have now been able to watch it now that we got our tv back up and going that movie's great the special effects in it are fucking killer definitely definitely fun that's one that we'll probably get around to doing eventually super super fun so definitely check that one out I also checked out the Scream Factory release of Road Games with Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis. This is one that I found out about years ago. There was a, the documentary about Ozploitation called Not Quite Hollywood. What kind of uh, exploitation did, is that? Ozploitation, so Australian exploitation. Oh, okay, gotcha. I was thinking like Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? It's basically Rear Window with Stacey Keach as a truck driver instead and there's this other van on the road that maybe has a killer in it and maybe this person is burying bodies and he's just seeing bits and pieces of what's going on but they're kind of fucking with him and Jamie Lee Curtis is this hitchhiker that's kind of floating between him and other people's cars and it's just kind of all the back and forth of being on like a long stretch of highway and seeing a lot of the same people over and over and the 
there might be a murderer at large as well. Is this kind of the same character Jamie Lee Curtis played in The Fog? It's very similar, actually. <laughs> yeah, so that one's fun. I got my first chunk of Black Friday weekend movie purchases in with Warner Archive. I got a chunk of stuff from them, including a movie called The Green Slime, which there is a connection, like a deep, weird six degrees connection to Black Christmas that I'll bring up in a little bit. But The Green Slime is the best of really kitschy sci-fi, super fake models, dudes running around in giant plastic green monster suits and lots of shit spray painted silver and made to look like space. Is it kind of along the same lines as like the blob or attack of the killer tomatoes? Uh, so this is not tongue in cheek at all. I don't think like okay. this is a very like serious, but still campy. Like think the most Star Trek original series kind of camp. Gotcha. Like it's that level, but with Godzilla Showa era, like models and like spaceships hanging on wires kind of bullshit. But that movie is super fun. And then last, I watched a fucking ludicrous movie and I text you while I was watching it. It is on Shudder. It's one of their new editions. It will still be up by the time this episode drops, so y'all should definitely check it out. It is called Deadly Games on Shudder, but it was also known as Game Over in some countries and Dial Code Santa Claus. <laughs> The best way I can describe it is this. It's like if Tim and Eric directed a French Home Alone in 1989, so a year before Home Alone. It is this little fucking kid whose mom is like the CEO of a toy company in France, and he lives in a giant mansion with all these rooms, and like every kid in kind of the mid-80s to late-90s, he's like a tech genius, and he has his whole house rigged up with security cameras cameras that he controls from like a little computer thing on his arm and he's got traps set all around the house because he dresses up like Rambo and like runs around playing games the grandfather lives at the house and it's very much like a Grandpa Joe from like Willy Wonka situation like what the fuck does this grandpa do other than like let this kid just pound wine and eat croissants for breakfast and then like let this kid work on a car and then let the kid drive this kid's like 10 with the most righteous mullet by the way but it's basically like you have all that background and then there is a deranged crazy hobo guy who signs up to be like a mall Santa at this giant toy company's headquarters on Christmas Eve. I was wondering where the Christmas horror was going to come in. Yes, yes. So it's all set on Christmas Eve and this kid is kind of bummed because his mom, who's the CEO of the toy company, has to go like run the toy company on Christmas Eve and so he's left at home alone with the grandpa. The crazy hobo guy that's like the mall Santa now. A little girl that sits in his lap is like, you're not the real Santa, and pulls his beard off, and he fucking snaps and slaps the shit out of this kid. Oh, shit. And so they're like, you're fired. So while he's going to, like, collect his paperwork for being fired or whatever, he hears that they're delivering toys to the CEO woman's house for her son. So he's like, I'll get my revenge. And so it's just this guy dressed as Santa Claus terrorizing this kid at home who like has already Kevin from Home Alone like rigged out this entire house with booby traps and shit it's 
fucking wild, bro. The decision-making in this movie is bananas. It goes from way campy, like, canted angles everywhere, and just the most heightened, magical, realism bullshit, to, like, this guy brutally stabbing the dog to death, and getting darts in the neck, and getting set on fire. Like, there's all kinds of insane, like, this is way, way, way not, like, appropriate for a kid's movie levels of violence and menace going on. I think you texted me specifically saying that this is like a more fucked up Home Alone, basically. Totally, totally. And it's like the year before Home Alone came out. But the whole deal with this movie is it's only been available in bootleg form until now. So it's just been this unreleased weird movie. But somebody's restored it and it's on Shudder. So you can watch it on Shudder right now. And I'm sure because it's on Shudder and it's restored, some company like Vinegar Syndrome or Code Red or somebody is probably about to put it out on Blu-ray. It was fucking ludicrous. And there is just so much shit in that movie that you could not get away with now working with kids. Like from a safety standpoint, like you just could not. This little kid is on a skateboard up underneath the car, like fixing the car in air quotes. It really, he's just banging at the engine with wrenches and shit. (laughs) But he like slides out and walks around and like pops the fucking jack on the car and the car comes down right in no fucking universe would you like let a 10 year old kid do that on a movie set just from a safety standpoint you know like there's just wild shit like that in the movie and again this kid like pounding wine and croissants at breakfast because i guess you know they're french (laughs) it was bananas oh jesus definitely worth checking out if you want a real like bonkers what the fuck kind of movie this year. Where is Todd's mom having sex was his blood rage. This hobo's blood rage was getting his beard yanked off and being accused of not being Santa Claus. Totally. Totally. Got it. It it opens with him like seeing all these kids in the street having a snowball fight and he runs over and joins them and all the kids immediately are like who the fuck is this weird guy? Fuck it. Let's bail. And all these kids like run away from him because he's a creepy old hobo guy but it's like hey kids I want to play. So I think the Santa Claus thing was just, oh yeah, I want to be loved. I want somebody to care about me. I want attention. And Santa Claus, that guy, he gets the attention, right? So let me be Santa Claus. But yeah, as soon as this little girl's like, you're full of shit, sir. He just got triggered and like slaps the fuck out of that little girl. When that happened in the movie, I audibly was just like, oh shit. (laughs) And like kind of lost it for a minute because that's when all of a sudden like shit took a wrong turn. (laughs) And it started getting weird. Weirder than it already was. So if anybody's interested in something bananas, check that out. And the guy who directed it, Rene Manzor, I briefly looked at his filmography. He did episodes of the Young Indiana Jones series from the 90s, which is fucking wild. Because, like, I remember watching that as a kid. And it's just so fucking weird that, like, this movie, 25 years later, has come into my life. And it's a dude who directed some shit that I watched when I was a kid. And just no idea. So, yeah, that was kind of bananas. Sounds like he uh, knows how to make stuff for kids. Oh, yeah, totally. While you were talking about all that, too, I just went ahead and image searched the Screen Factory's release of The Blob, and my God, this artwork that they used for it is so good. I guess oh, yeah. it's like a, a lenticular wraparound cover or something. It's like there's, it's like the, the slip cover that goes over, but yeah, 
yeah, it's just Kevin Dillon with his righteous mullet on his motorcycle and Shawnee Smith on the back with just all the blob creeping up around them. It's great. It looks a little bit kind of like Purple Rain's cover. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> a little bit. That I'm looking at it, but it's so like 80s neon to the max. It's fucking righteous. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to do that movie eventually because it has some amazing practical effects in it. Definitely, definitely one that we'll get around to eventually. So that said, Icebreaker. We're discussing a dark Christmas movie. So let's maybe discuss some dark stories or things that have happened to us during the Christmas holiday or just things that we've encountered during the Christmas holiday that are very, very, you know, in contrast to the spirit of the holiday season. Yeah, so I know I talked about this on The Nightmare, but I literally had my one and only night terror in my life. Christmas Eve, technically I had it on Christmas, because I went to bed after midnight. That's right. I, I, I remember you saying that now. Yeah. yeah, so that happened. But a story that kind of is a lot more along the lines of this movie that still freaks me out a little bit now that I think about it. I remember it was 2012, 2013. And I, I think I'd moved out of my parents and I was hanging out kind of out in the Metairie area, if you're familiar with New Orleans. And I was hanging out with my, my friends over there and my parents' house is all the way across town. It takes a good 30 minutes to get to them. And it was in the middle of Christmas, mid-December, you know, Christmas lights were everywhere. Everything was in full swing. I get a phone call from my mom and she's just like, hey, um, what are you doing right now? And mind you, this is at fucking midnight. My mom usually goes to bed at like 9, 10 at night. And I was like, mom, why are you calling me at at midnight? Is everything okay? And she was kind of trying to do that thing of like, don't worry, it's not a big deal, but where are <laughs> you right now? And I'm like over at whoever's house, you know, all the way out in Metairie, what's going on? Well, your dad's on a business trip. I'm the only one home. I have the dog here with me. The dog is going crazy. And I am getting ready to call the police because there is a man dressed head to toe. Like I can't even see his face. He has his hoodie up. He has to be at least six foot taller or larger. And he's been ringing the doorbell and banging on the door. I'm home alone and it's well after midnight and he's not going away. The Christmas lights are on and everything. So I don't want to turn off the Christmas lights because I don't want him to think I'm home because my car's in the garage and everything else, but he is not going away. No one else in the neighborhood seems to be hearing this did or responding. Did she not call the police before she called you? She did. I mean, granted, like, this is New Orleans, so the police are probably not going to show up for two hours, but... So- Basically, she asked me, she's like, look, I already called the cops, but I want you to come here now and I want you to stay the night at the house if you don't mind. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's not going to really change up my life, but you're kind of freaking me out now. So I drove over there and my mom was just like, oh, he's knocking again, but I think the cops are about here. I think I hear some sirens. I'm going to hang up. And then she clicks off. So I'm driving all the way across town, not knowing exactly what happened. And I get to the house and it's unnervingly quiet on my street the Christmas lights are now off on my parents' house. I pull up. At this point, I was carrying a pocket knife on me at all times just for various purposes. I just, I, that's what I do. I have a pocket knife on me. And I was like hand on knife, blade out, creeping my way towards the back 
back door to let myself in. And so she comes to the back door, lets me in. We lock the doors. And she's just like, yeah. So called the cops. He was still at the front door, heard the sirens down the street. Cops show up. He's nowhere to be found. They start driving around the neighborhood a little bit, spotlighting. He's nowhere. I didn't see which direction he ran in. And I don't know how he ran into the backyard. I would have seen him. I don't think he went to the neighbor's backyards. And if he ran either way up the street, he would have been seen by the cops. So I'm terrified now. And she's like, by the way, I'm going to bed. So (laughs) have fun. (laughs) Yeah. So I stayed up pretty much all night on the couch downstairs, hand on my knife with the dog, just waiting for a motherfucker to show up and on edge. And to this day, like no rhyme or reason. It was just one of those random like stranger in the night's kind of moments where like no rhyme or reason as to what happened never got harassed uh, again by anything like that I don't think there were any other reports in the neighborhood um, there have been like kind of weird occurrences in my parents neighborhood from time to time but it's otherwise a, a good neighborhood so yeah I don't know what that was about this movie kind of reminded me of that memory because that seemed like the start the setup to a black Christmas-esque scenario totally. it wasn't necessarily like super scary nothing really happened but yeah that's just kind of one of those weird moments you forget about until you watch Black Christmas and you're reminded immediately of it and you remember the memory pretty clearly. Yeah. My story, I guess, is not nearly as tense as that. I was just going to say, like, as far as general, like, darkness in the midst of the holiday season, just peek behind the curtain a little bit. I work a retail management job, so that's why I keep saying this time of the year is busy, but quite often, surprisingly often, the amount of customers that I deal with this time of the year that are like, yeah, well, my family's all dead, or my husband just died, or my kid just died in a car accident last week, and I need to get whatever. And and then all of a sudden, it's just like, wait, why did you have to throw that specific chunk of information in? Jesus Christ. Or like... You know, ooh-wee, you know, I, I don't know. Just the amount of people that come in, they're like, so my son just died in a drunk driving accident. Can you get all the uh, photos off of his phone for us? Like, no, we can't do that. Sorry, but you, yeesh, you know, like, what do you tell somebody when they're being, like, that raw with you? When, like, literally there's Christmas decorations and music and everything going? Just like, oh, God, you know, this time of the year is wild. Or, yeah, just the amount of people who are like, yeah, I normally go spend time with my family, but... You know, they all died in a house fire last year. (laughs) God, it's the worst. Well, I mean, that kind of shit also happened in the hospital when I still worked in one. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Not even just on my floor. I mean, there was some tragic shit that happened right right on like Christmas Eve even. I mean, there were stories like all around the hospital, not just from our floor, from uh, overheard from other nurses or hospital staff, just for whatever reason. And it's not just kind of like a mental illness thing, but holidays just attract tragedy and general. I mean, I have a hunch about that because my dad has also worked at the ER my entire life. It's so many more people are traveling. Yep. And so there's that many more people that are like on the road being stressed and being around other people who are traveling and on the road and being stressed. It's also just the general stress of the holiday that causes people to like have heightened health condition problems and just make a lot of like last minute bad decisions that they wouldn't have otherwise or money related things. Like I think a lot of it is just that 
that general stress level of the holidays causes things to happen that normally wouldn't happen other times of the year. And it's just busier. So there's just more people like bumping against each other. Absolutely. So that said, we have a quick message to bring you and then we will discuss Black Christmas. What's up, fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror, or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! All right, so once again, this week we are going to be discussing 1974's classic holiday slasher murder movie. Canadian slasher as well. Canadian, yes. Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark. Silent night, evil night. So, um, yeah, uh, this movie is pretty fucking terrifying, actually, it turns out. Yep. Before you go into a little bit of history of the movie, just off the bat, I know I've said this before, kind of realistic horror isn't necessarily what usually gets me. If I know the person is a real person and whatever, I guess there's still some degree of control, blah, 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 yada, yada. I'm not going to go into the full psychosis of my own fears, but this movie might be the scariest to me, the scariest slasher movie I've ever watched. All right. I thought this movie was scarier than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, wow, really? Okay. This movie got me. This movie got under my skin. It's such a good horror movie because it is not jump scare heavy. There are jump scares. It is so fucking creepy throughout the it's entire so thing. It's so creepy, yeah. It's so effective. It works. It's a slow build. There's payoffs. I'm just going to say right up top before we even get into the specifics of behind the scenes as well as the movie itself if you are a newbie to horror and horror is something you're trying to get into but it scares the shit out of you stay away from black christmas until no you've a, no until you've had a couple jump fucking head first into this one this is like a great one to start with in my opinion oh yeah if you want to be checking your closets for like about three months yeah you could you could do that if you want to have nightmares about like ted bundy being in your house right now and murdering like five people at once yeah go ahead 
Yeah, this movie definitely has a creep factor that is off the charts. I mean, I I love the shit out of this movie. I'm I'm sorry to I keep cutting you off, but I, I got to get this out there. Like this movie is also proto so many other horror tropes and movies. This is basically Scream before Scream was way ever a thing. There are a lot of tropes that this movie does that either it was the first movie to pull off or very, very few movies had that didn't get as much attention. But you're right. The whole the call is coming from inside the house trope is in this movie really big. The whole idea of the slasher, this unseen POV killer who's stalking teenagers, that's pretty novel to this. The whole yeah. idea of POV from the killer is pretty new. Like there were very, very few movies that had done that before. I think Peeping Tom is probably the only movie that had done that before this, where you're actually seeing what the killer is seeing. And like beyond the thriller, psychological horrors that kind of were the basis for slashers like Psycho and Peeping Tom, Black Christmas is right at the forefront of slashers. Uh, This is what, four or five years before even Halloween came out? Yeah. This movie came out nine or ten days after Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They both came out in October in 1974. And I know I texted you this before, but I don't understand how this movie isn't regarded on the same level, if not more so, than like a Halloween or a Friday the 13th as the grandfather, godfather of slasher movies. Because if you would have told me this movie was made in 1974, I wouldn't have believed you if I didn't go into this already knowing that. I would have thought this was like a spinoff from Halloween or just trying to mark it off of that. Well, funny enough, Halloween was actually originally being developed as a sequel to this movie. Really? Yeah, okay. John Carpenter was kind of toying around the idea of Halloween as a sequel before he just decided to make it its own thing. But my theory is this, and I'm sure I, I needed to do a little bit more research. So, yay, hooray, here I am on a podcast talking about it. But my guess is this movie traveled around the U.S. a lot and was on the drive-in circuit a lot. It also had a couple of different titles over time. So I think that the success of this movie which it was successful it made money for sure I think a lot of the success of this movie is a little muddled just because it had a more low-key release it wasn't as controversial and word of mouth as like Texas Chainsaw was but having like so many different names and so many different cuts and versions probably led to it like not really having a whole lot of immediate impact but everything in it like we were talking about from a trope and story standpoint bled into other things as time went on for sure and the movie now has a huge cult following I mean it's widely regarded as like one of the best slasher movies one of the best holiday Christmas movies in my opinion it's my favorite Christmas horror movie but it's well regarded and its place in horror cinema history is cemented now for sure. But yeah, yeah it is wild that this movie and Texas Chainsaw came out within just a few days of each other. They didn't probably have a whole lot of overlap because again, they were traveling, you know, in opposite directions on that drive-in circuit probably. So it wasn't like you could just go to a theater and like both were there, you know, at any given time. It just seems to me a little bit too much like this is the Dinosaur Jr. to Halloween's Nirvana, whereas like Halloween. <laughs> Halloween and Nirvana are so now mainstream. And yes, if you are any bit of a music fan, you either may have heard of Dinosaur Jr. or listened to Dinosaur Jr. And a lot of people would argue that, hey, Dinosaur Jr. is a better band than Nirvana. And even Nirvana themselves, Kurt Cobain, I know himself, said there wouldn't be a Nirvana without Dinosaur Jr. Probably in the same way that there wouldn't be a Halloween without Black Christmas. But it's just a little unfortunate that 
in the history books. Halloween is a superstar, whereas Black Christmas is more of you have to know, have a little bit of an inside knowledge of horror. Yeah, that's a pretty good analogy. I was kind of wondering where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty good analogy. I knew the title of this movie and I'd seen images of it before, but I had no idea what this was about. I wasn't even 100% sure it was a slasher movie until I sat down and watched it. <laughs> yeah, I remember you asking me like, so what, is, what am I getting into? What is this about? I was like, no, no, I'm not telling you shit. Go watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you did that because it, it I mean, it scared me. Just the idea of horror around Christmas. You always think like, oh, horror movies are at their best around Halloween, which yeah, there's a good argument for that. But the idea of Christmas getting turned on its head and becoming dark and sinister, which is is always fascinating because Christmas is supposed to be like the jolly holiday, the lit up happy holiday, but taking something that's like supposed to be happy and twisting it, it is sometimes more effective, (laughs) I'd say. There is definitely a pervasive darkness throughout this entire movie that I appreciate. I mean, you know, one of the characters is dealing with substance abuse quite obviously, and there are other characters that are dealing with mental illness issues and just all of this, like, real-life darkness kind of under the surface of the movie. And then there's murder on top of all of that. Well, and then even there's abortion. Abortion totally. is yeah. a big forefront of this movie in 1974. Um, yeah. And I know we've covered another movie or two other movies that have done the same thing, but I don't know if they were as old as this one. And yeah, I, I do see your point, though. Like, it makes more sense to me now that you've discussed your theory about it maybe not having as much distribution or word of mouth, maybe it being a Canadian film. While I do personally think this is scarier than Texas Chainsaw, I will agree with you that Texas Chainsaw is definitely a much more shock value movie. It's way more bombastic, for sure. Yeah, this one has a lot of darkness to it. This one, I think, is more dark than the original Halloween, but it's not more dark and bombastic than Texas Chainsaw. I will say that. Yeah, and on top of all that it's just really 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 well written and the characters are well drawn even for the small amount of time that they all have together and it's funny that's kind of the other thing too i had this conversation with one of my employees that i kind of wanted to slap a while back because he was whining and complaining about how horror movies should never be funny that defeats the whole purpose and i was like well no (laughs) because when horror movies balance humor and horror together and there's a good ebb and flow of like that roller coaster ride where you get brought all the way to the top with some humor and all of a sudden the horror hits and it just poof throws you down it works well when it works well but you have to balance that and this movie is a good balance of like there is some humor and kind of wackiness to it with the house mother in her fucking drinking and stuff like that but then it gets real fucking dark real fucking quick so having those two things balance out makes for a really solid movie especially like you said with the atmosphere of Christmas right. in the background that should be this joyous time and then there's still the juxtaposition of all this actual darkness going on yeah well and this is very very different from a lot of the movies we've done recently and very very different from a horror comedy this is a straight up slasher horror movie that yes. just happens to have humorous moments in it because it's part of certain characters but the humor is not over the top the humor is very much in line with realistic characters this movie is definitely not on the same wavelength as like neither creeps neither demons american werewolf none of that this is a very serious dark horror movie i wouldn't call this a fun horror movie if that makes sense yeah another thing that kind of blew me away too was we've been on the string of like doing quote-unquote fun horror movies and i thought that going into black christmas that black christmas was also going to be an over-the-top fun seasonal horror movie kind of like night of the comet was 
This is just pure serious darkness. Yeah, and on that note, I did watch, I rewatched the uh, remake. It had, I, I saw it the year it came out in 2000, I think, seven somewhere in there yeah 2006 or 2007 i saw that movie when it came out i saw it in theaters with some like college friends pretty sure i was a little uh substance tingled at the time so i don't remember much but that was also before i had seen the original and so i just kind of blew that movie off so i did rewatch it and i will say that movie does not hold up and I know a lot of people are, like, critically reassessing that remake and saying, oh, it's actually pretty good. I'll talk about that once we're done talking about this movie, but I was not a fan of that remake whatsoever. And that movie does do what we're talking about, where it tries to put a lot more humor and camp quality into the story, and it does not fucking work, in my opinion. So we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that in a bit. The little bit I read up on the 2006 remake, at least the opinions I read, were all very critical of it, and were like, this is not at all like the original. It's getting like some weird reassessments now where people are going back and saying like oh yeah it's better than we remember it better than we remember it is not good you know so i i don't know and one last thing before we go into the plot synopsis of this movie which by the way just go ahead and watch it before just you do watch that it, yeah it's it's on so many streaming platforms this time of the year i know for sure it's literally available for free through voodoo i'm sure it's on fucking shutter and amazon and just just go check it out go watch it yeah and then come back and listen to us but before we even do that, I feel like I need to back up and defend myself on my comments. Don't get me wrong. Halloween and Nirvana, I like both. Don't get me wrong. I'm not critical of those. They're great. I love them. But I also probably like more Dinosaur Jr. and probably Black Christmas now. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, that... I don't feel like that was like a shots fired kind of moment. So at least with my opinion on the movies, I don't know about the music, but the movies I might get a little bit of blowback for, but this is my new favorite slasher movie, I think. I still think overall the most fun I've had with this podcast is Halloween 3 still, but possibly since like maybe Autopsy of Jane Doe, this might be the scariest one for me that we've done so far. Cool. So to kind of talk about some background real quick. The movie was directed by Bob Clark, who did Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, Dead of Night, and Porkies, which also starred <laughs> several people from the film, which, again, like we joked about, it's a Canadian film. So, makes sense that, you know, most of the cast is either Canadian or from the general area, and, you know, a lot of them ended up in Porkies later. But, other movie that Bob Clark directed, another holiday classic. A Christmas Story. He not only did he direct it, he produced it and I think wrote it. Yeah. So what a fucking great double feature to watch A Christmas Story and then watch Black Christmas. Like that's <laughs> the perfect combo pack right there. Like, And then boy howdy did his career take a turn. Well, yeah, let's not talk about Baby Geniuses. geniuses. But, and then yeah. <laughs> Baby Geniuses 2 was his last movie, unfortunately. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll skip those. But yeah, Bob Clark... The fact that he directed not one, but two classic Christmas movies is kind of mind-boggling. So, anyway, this movie apparently is a favorite of both Steve Martin's and Elvis, both of whom have said publicly, like, this is a movie that we love. Steve Martin apparently, like, told Olivia Hussey when she was auditioning for Roxanne, like, yo, you are in one of my favorite movies. And she assumed that he was talking about Romeo and Juliet, and he was like, no, Black Christmas. <laughs> 
And apparently, like, fucking Elvis liked it, too. And, like, that was the movie that he watched every year on Christmas with his family. Well, up until then, I like how you were still using present tense for Elvis. Yeah. Lending credence <laughs> to the conspiracy theory that he never died. Yep. Well, um, he would have only, like, watched this movie a couple of times if he did watch it on Christmas. Because he died in, like, what, 77? So Something like that. But it's, it's kind of thought that this movie was inspired by a series of holiday murders in Quebec that were committed by Wayne Bowden. And both Bob Clark and the writer Roy Moore have both kind of said, yeah, that, that kind of influences a tiny bit. Weird fact, NBC was planning to air this movie in 1978 under the title Stranger in the House. Right. But people in the Florida area started calling that local affiliate saying, yo, you can't play this movie right now because of the tragedy that just happened tragedy was a guy snuck into a uh, dormitory at Florida State University, murdered a bunch of co-eds, and then murdered a bunch of other women, like, right down the road. Uh, that dude was Ted Bundy. Yeah. So, literally, like, Ted Bundy is the reason why this movie, like, didn't get shown one year on Christmas. Well, and it makes sense because the entire time I was watching this, I was just like, this is kind of a bunch of serial killers wrapped up into one, but especially Ted Bundy and especially Richard Ramirez as the Night Stalker. And yeah. at this time, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, was still very much active as well. Because yep. I don't think he was caught until the 80s. So that makes a lot of sense. Yep. But yeah, just in general, like, I fucking love the, like, look and feel of this movie. Like, this movie is so visually dark. There is so much just darkness that's punctuated by all these bright, colorful Christmas lights. So I just love that look and that vibe. I really do like the super kitschy 70s-ness of the clothes and the sets in this house. The house, too, is like a super kind of creepy atmosphere because it's not quite a, like a Tudor-style house. It's just lots of hardwood and there's a big wraparound staircase that leads to the different levels of this house and there's a basement and an attic that we see and just it's it's a really wild house that's perfect for setting this kind of cat and mouse game in but the cinematography in this is great like i mentioned earlier this is one of the first movies that used that whole pov of the killer in the cinematography which the cinematographer albert dunk rigged up this harness with a shoulder mount for the camera so anytime that you see like the killer wandering around and you see his hands that's the cinematographer even like on the very beginning where he's like climbing up that ladder outside the house that's Albert Dunk so all of that is fucking wild and surreal and if you get a chance to see this in an actual theater those scenes really stand out because they're so disorienting I mean we just got a new TV and it's a little bit bigger than the previous TV that we had but just watching those POV scenes on that TV really made a difference this time that I rewatched it well and I went on Wikipedia and IMDB to look up who played the shadow or the prowl or whatever you want to call it. There wasn't, like, really one person. Yeah. Like, supposedly Bob Clark did some of the, like, shadows, yeah. and the voice is done by an actor named Nick Mancuso. Mancuso, and yeah, yeah. a couple of other people, and the cinematographer is the killer in some instances. Nobody really remembers who is the killer in that moment where you see his eye through the slit of the door. I was about to ask you which one. 
one of them was that. Yeah, nobody's really sure there, but that's kind of one thing that's also interesting about this movie is just the ambiguity of that killer and just the unknownness of it. Very much like your story about your mom, like just not knowing like who the fuck is this guy at my house? What does he want to do with me? What is his purpose? Like just not having any concept of what this person's motivation is, is really fascinating to me. And that's one of the biggest weaknesses of the remake is they go so fucking in depth about like the killer's entire background and explain away all this bullshit that we don't need. And that's why this movie's terrifying because you don't know why this person is murdering people. Yeah. Well, and that's maybe also another thing as to why I find this slasher movie more horrific than most others is you aren't given the only instances of any idea of who this person is is you hear him and you see his hands and there's that one one creepy fucking scary scene where you see his eye in the slit of the door that's it you could maybe say his name is Billy if you wanted to go that route but that's kind of up to your own imagination so I think the reason why I find it scary is there is a little bit of a degree of pseudo supernatural it's not supernatural at all it's he's obviously a a deranged killer but the fact that he is able to get away like a shadow there is almost an otherworldliness to his presence because he's so quiet and just manages to never be seen and there are so many scenes in the movie where you see his shadow like moving in the background silently behind like things that are going on and you know he's always fucking there shit that's another movie this this movie is like a proto the strangers as well because there are so many instances of yeah in the background you see something and you see the shadow or you see is him just walking through a door but you don't actually see like him you just see like the door shut or whatever yeah this movie's fucking good it's real fucking scary the other thing that I want to bring up real quick is the music and the kind of soundscape of the movie because there is some music here and there but so much of it is just atmosphere being created it's like an oral soundscape more so than it is a soundtrack and score it's a lot of the composer Carl Zitter banging on piano strings and like strumming hard across the piano strings instead of actually playing the piano keys he tied forks and combs and knives and stuff and while he was recording he would like press against the actual reels while recording to like artificially slow things down which gives it a really weird atmosphere but I really like the whole like out of tune piano thing within scores when it's used well. A good example would be Danny Elfman's score for A Simple Plan, Sam Raimi movie from the 90s. That whole score is haunting as fuck because it's just this out of tune piano playing. But yeah, all of that atmosphere is so good. And when you do hear Christmas carols in the background, a lot of times they're out of tune or they're like in a minor key, which is really fucking haunting. And it's just a subtle thing that's not drawn attention to that makes the mood and atmosphere so much more tense and strange. There's something just naturally creepy about young carolers singing that high-pitched children's voice of like Silent Night and all that. Especially in like the context of what happens earlier in the movie with another child. Yeah. That's kind of like a subplot to this. But there was even a scene where two of the characters were having like a deep heartfelt conversation but in the background you hear church bells playing a traditional Christmas carol but it's in like a minor key. And it's real subtle but it's just one of those unsettling as fuck kind of things. It's like there for atmosphere. 
So this movie I could see as being one that was played in sororities to terrify all the pledges or the sisters living in there. I wanted to talk to my sister-in-law who is in college right now and is in a sorority and just kind of see like what she knew about this movie if any of the other girls in the sorority have heard of this movie. But I was just going to wait until she was home for the holidays or at least a weekend that she was back and I want to have her over to like actually watch this with us. I think she would really really dig it. We're doing this kind of early enough of the month that she's not back yet but I definitely wanted to show her this because I think she would get a kick out of it and probably show like the rest of her sorority sisters as well. (laughs) Freak them the fuck out. Uh, Yeah. And I am curious about this new remake that's coming out. What, this year or next year? It's this weekend. Oh shit, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, we're we're recording this on December the 10th and the movie comes out this Friday. So yeah, we were just a few days shy of me being able to go like see it and then talk about it as well. The people behind it, I like a lot. I, I trust the creative team and I mean, shit we already did a movie with Imogen Poots who's great it's interesting the direction that they're apparently going in it's different yeah it's very different whereas it takes basically the same premise except the girls are forming up together to hunt the killer down yeah. is kind of the premise so I'm very curious to see how that goes because that's a very different direction all the kerfluffle right now has to do with the larger distribution studio wanting a PG-13 rating just to get butts in the seats and so a lot of horror fans have been wanting complaining about like oh they're watering this movie down blah 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 but we'll see because the amount of violence that you can get away with now on a PG-13 movie is kind of wild so if they just cut a couple of fuck words and like maybe a topless scene or something like that then like okay the stuff that like horror fans are whining about being watered down whatever like it'll be fine probably so we'll we'll see but that's been kind of the fuss about it. That doesn't bother me at all it's more of just how far away from the original direction are they going? Well, even then, like we talked about last week with Night of the Comet, if you're going to do a remake, do something different, especially with a story true. like this. Take it in a different direction. That's very true. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's kind of impossible to do this movie again in modern times. <laughs> yeah, because the first remake was that. It was not good. Because, like, what are you going to do? Have the guy, like, know all their cell phone numbers and star 67 them or whatever? Yeah. Which I guess you could go that direction, but yeah, that kind of takes away a little bit of the mystique of the killer, I guess. We're beating around the bush, so I guess we could just get right into it, huh? Yep, yep. The movie begins a few days before Christmas. It doesn't specifically say when, but it's definitely like 22nd, 23rd, 24th, somewhere right before Christmas. We see the outside of a sorority house covered in Christmas lights. It's snowing. There's a party going on inside with the sorority, and we see the POV of this killer skulking around the outside of the house and breathing heavy. It's creepy right off the bat again yeah. let's just get that anytime the killers and pov it's creepy it's unsettling yeah he's making almost like animalistic noises and have he's going in between like heavy breathing and to outright like crazy talk we go inside and we meet some of the sorority girls inside the house so we are introduced to barb who is visibly drunk which she is through most of this movie she is kind of discussing plans for a santa meet and greet the next day with 
Phyllis and her boyfriend, who is going to be their Santa Claus at this home for underprivileged kids or whatever. Who I should say right off the bat, he, he should not be a Santa Claus. And <laughs> that comes back later as to why he shouldn't be a Santa Claus. Yeah, but they're just kind of winding, grabbing, but like, oh, we got to do this volunteer thing tomorrow. Ugh, right. Barb is played by the wonderful Margot Kidder. She was in Brian De Palma's Sisters, which I have talked about on this podcast before, playing two roles. Um, she was in The Great Waldo Pepper. Of course, she was Lois Lane in the Superman movies. She was in the Amityville Horror, Delirious, and she has a small role in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 as well. Phyllis is played by Andrea Martin, and she was in Ivan Reitman's early movie Cannibal Girls, another Canadian horror movie. But she was also in Giordante's Inner Space, which I love, and Wag the Dog, and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. She was in My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and she is the only cast member from this movie to show up in the remake Black Christmas or, you know, Black Xmas. She plays the role of the house mother in the remake. Do you know if any of them are gonna, are showing up in the new remake? I haven't looked, to be honest. Gotcha. If they are, I'm not even sure that they would even be listed on, like, IMDb just yet because they might be keeping it under wraps. Who knows? Right. The Phyllis role was actually originally offered to Gilda Radner, and she had to decline because of commitments to SNL. So there's a couple of what-if moments in the casting that will go through as characters come up, because this could have been a very different movie with some of these alternate cast people. So Barb then interrupts Jess and Phyllis while they're discussing something serious. Like, she walks in on them in the kitchen and kind of starts a conversation up, but they were clearly already talking and kind of tensely about something. Jess is played by Olivia Hussey. She is really well known for these uh, Zeffirelli, Zaninelli, I can't remember the director's name, the Romeo and Juliet from the 60s that all of us have probably seen in fucking high school. The one with the boobs that you're allowed to watch in high school. (laughs) She was also in Death on the Nile. Here's the connection to Green Slime that I mentioned earlier. She was in a movie called Virus, which was directed by Kenji Fukusaku, who was the director of Green Slime. So that was a weird wraparound that I didn't realize until this morning when I was looking things up. She was also in Turkey Shoot, Psycho 4, the TV version of It from the 90s, and she was in Ice Cream Man. And Hussey is another one of these actresses that kind of has some craziness in her real life a little bit. She took the role on the advice of her psychic, who told her that the movie was going to be a giant success. And sure enough, it was. So there you go. And she is British. She's not putting up this accent for the character, right? So I know she was born in like Argentina. I don't know exactly what what Olivia Hussey's background is, but she is some kind of European by way of something else. Yeah, obviously she started in that Romeo and Juliet, but I'm not sure. But yeah, she definitely like has an accent that she isn't really trying to hide that much in this movie because it comes through super heavy. It's also kind of nuts because she also has like weird, random, more modern credits. Like uh, she voiced Talia al Ghul and Superman the animated series randomly and Batman Beyond. Oh man, that's almost, almost uh, we'll we'll give that the honorary credit of who in this fucking movie did a voice in a Batman cartoon. Yeah, and then she has done three voices in video games. All three were Star Wars games. All three different roles. Wait, what? Who who was she? So according to Wikipedia in Star Wars Rogue Squadron from 1998, she was Kassan Moore. Okay. And 2000 Star Wars Force Commander, she 
was an ATAA driver and a refugee, like just background voices, basically. And in 2011, Star Wars The Old Republic, the MMO that Bioware made, yeah. she was Jedi Master Juan Parr. That's fucking wild. Okay. Yeah. Olivia Hussey doing voices on Star Wars games. Yep. So anyway, after a couple of minutes of this party... One of the girls basically says, like, okay, cool. Time's up. You know, this shit's shutting down, so all the boys gotta leave. So, everybody kind of says bye to their boyfriends who were there at the party, and they all skedaddle. Well, and and meanwhile, too, when the killer was outside, because the killer, we had mentioned earlier, it's almost disorienting when he's in POV. And, yeah, he climbs up the lattice, and he goes into what looks like the attic. It basically is the attic of this, like, two, three-story house. Yeah, the attic window is unlocked, so he sneaks in through the attic and goes down the hatch to the attic. There's like a hatch in the ceiling with a ladder like built into the wall permanently in like a little nook which is odd. Um, But he like sneaks into the house through there and is kind of up in the upper levels of the house spying on the girls below. Yeah and at this point in the movie I thought for a second that Barb was going to wind up being like the main character or one of the two main characters which she kind of is. I've seen this movie several times and this is the first time that I've ever gotten the vibe that the movie is setting her up that she is going to be the first person to go. Really? That's the vibe that I was kind of getting. Again, I knew what was going to happen, but all the signs of the movie are pointing to like, she's going to be the first person to get off. And I guess in like old slasher, yeah, that makes sense. But I guess I was approaching it with a more modern feeling of like, oh, what if it subverts the genre? And she's yeah. the one that lives. Not too early for that still. Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, I felt like she was going to be like the main character, at least like tertiary character. Then I also did feel like at this point that Jess was also going to be a main character. And lo and behold, Jess is the main character from like here on out. Yeah. So the phone rings and Jess answers the phone and it's a creepy, weird voice. And she kind of immediately calls all the other girls over because for some time, like weekly have been getting calls from some weirdo who is like using a weird voice and just heavy breathing and says like really gross, obscene things. But they all kind of take it as a joke. This is kind of their, like, little personal weirdo who's been calling. And so they all gather around and listen into the phone call. And immediately they're all kind of laughing and joking about, like, oh, yeah, the weirdo called back. But as they start listening, it gets real fucked up. And he starts saying all this terrible stuff. And it's language that, like, at the time of this movie would have been real shocking to a lot of people. Yeah, he drops a lot of C words, like hard C words. Yeah, and just really gross sexualized stuff that slowly all these girls, like, the jokiness fades away from them pretty quick. And they all get real somber and real concerned. Like threatening rape and murder and all that stuff. Yeah. Out of curiosity, when you edit this episode, are you going to be putting in clips of him on the phone because if you are mind you listeners it's generally kind of creepy i put it this way yes i will pick something that doesn't have intense sexual language i'll I'll say that right now like i'll just go ahead and put something in from later in the movie where it's just creepy crazy person talk oh but even even the creepy crazy person talk it's unsettling it's very unsettling so just prepare yourself and we'll give you a heads up when we do so anyway while they are listening and they're all kind of getting actually creeped out and 
the jokiness of it's gone, right? Barb kind of jumps in at this point and is just like, yeah, well, fuck you, you weirdo, and blah, blah, blah. And she starts giving him hell, right? And riling him up. And then he just finally says, you know, you fucking bitch, I'm gonna fucking kill you. And, like, click, hangs up all of a sudden. And that, like, really upsets kind of everybody at that point. And Barb kind of rolls it off because she's drunk and she doesn't care. And she just told this guy to fuck off, basically. But Thanks a lot, Barb. She also yeah. says, like, yeah, you encounter all this all the time in the city. Yeah. But Claire Harrison, who is one of the other girls there, she is, like, real upset by Barb's reaction and Barb's provoking of him because there was talk that there was, like, a serial rapist running around and other girls disappearing in years before. So, you know, who knows who they could have been talking to, but, like, Barb shouldn't have done that. So Barb kind of blows it off. She's drunk. She's not in the mood to, like, hear this other girl giving her hell. So Claire decides, like, okay, cool. I gotta go, like, finish packing so I can leave and go back home to visit my family. So she goes upstairs and we see the rest of the girls kind of hanging around. The house mother shows up and she's like carrying a giant load of presents for all the girls and they're all being loud and raucous downstairs, right? So to back up, Claire is played by Lynn Griffin, um, was also in Curtains, which I've mentioned a couple of episodes back. She's one of the girls in that movie who's like the stand-up comedian girl. Um, And she was also in Strange Brew as well, another Canadian classic. And the house mother is played by Marion Waldman. Um, She's playing Miss McHenry. She had a very short acting career, but she was in a movie called Deranged, which is kind of inspired by, like, the Ed Gein story. And then she was in this movie directed by John Huston called Phobias, which is also pretty fucking wild. Her role was originally offered to Betty Davis, which that would have been, like, a whole different thing at this point. Oh my god, that would have been very different. But yeah, like, she's fucking wild. Like, she's probably the, the most of like the humor and levity in the movie kind of comes from her because she's just this old lush and we see her constantly drinking and you know sneaking weird bottles of booze that she's hidden all around this house but that's that's the stuff that cracked me up the most like I love when she goes to the bookcase it's just like B for booze and opens up this like <laughs> encyclopedia that has a cutout in it with like a bottle of cooking sherry which is like the most lush thing that you could possibly be drinking is just fucking cooking sherry. <laughs> it's between her and Barb is, I guess, being the most humorous parts. Barb's does take a little bit of a turn of like, yeah, Barb's is you like kind of have dark a and depressing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also love the scene where again the house mother is in the bathroom brushing her teeth and she's looking around for another bottle of booze and she pulls that fucking bottle out of the toilet tank, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just keeping it cool in the toilet tank, and she just swishes some of that while she's brushing her teeth. But yeah, and just I, I love when she's talking to herself as well, insulting the girls behind their yeah. back. Yeah, all these stuck-up spoiled bitches, and yeah. like, oh, they think they have it so rough, and I'll yeah. tell you what, blah, blah, you, they don't have to put up with, you know, all this, just, yeah, she's wild. Throughout this movie, the girls have done nothing but be kind to her, to Yeah, <laughs> they gave her a new moo-moo for Christmas, even. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which maybe that pissed her off. Yeah, who knows? But either way, we go back to Claire and she's in her room packing and she kind of senses, like she hears like a weird rustling and she turns around and kind of sees something in her closet. Like she sees something kind of move in her closet and she steps over and then all of a sudden the killer lunges out at her from the closet and definitely like a good jump scare. Yeah, this is a pretty intense one. Using like plastic from something in her closet, like plastic that your dry 
cleaning stuff comes back to you in. He wraps that around her entire head and suffocates the shit out of her. And we just have this weird, intense juxtaposition of her being strangled with this plastic wrap, cutting back downstairs to all the girls laughing and, like, having a fun time. So they don't hear her struggling upstairs because of the party that's going on below. But the killer kills her, murders her, strangles her, and we just see the shadow of the killer carrying her body out of the room and down the hallway and up into the attic through the little, like, crawlspace hatch. And it's an intense kill. Yeah. The the juxtaposition, like, right off the bat, like, what, what we've been discussing with turning Christmas on its head, the scene going back and forth between her getting suffocated and them having, obviously, a lot of fun post-Christmas party. Also, too, there's a cat. Yeah, yeah, there is a cat that hangs around the house as well, too, so just Chekhov's cat. That'll come back later. Yeah, yeah, Chekhov's cat... What the fuck again, horror movies? The cat's fine. The cat, I think, makes it. Well, we don't know what happens to the cat, which is a uh, minor, yeah, minor yeah, spoiler. Okay. But hey, it's better than killing the cat and string up its body, I guess, this time. so Yeah. And I'll say, like, of all the creepiness that's happened in the movie to this point, the sudden image that we see of Claire in the attic sitting in a rocking chair with the plastic wrap around her head with her eyes bulged out, the plastic sucked into her open mouth just is the most haunting goddamn thing that the movie keeps cutting back to over yeah. time. Claire's dead body throughout the movie is probably the most infamous. Or, uh, it's literally like a poster. Yeah. It's one of the original posters is her with the plastic wrap around her head like sucked to her mouth. Yeah, just her dead body in that chair is just extremely unsettling. I got like vibes that it was like a homage almost a little bit to maybe Psycho, like the body in the rocking chair or something. Yeah, it feels a little bit like that because of the rocking chair, yeah. So we go to the next morning and we see an older gentleman, glasses, mustache, you know, in a suit. He is at the college tapping his watch and you hear the bells of the larger clock above him ringing and we find out that he is Claire's father. And so she has just seemingly disappeared. She was supposed to meet him and he was going to take her back home for the holidays, but she is kind of nowhere to be found. But he bumps into another student there who will come back around later. And he's like, hey, I'm looking for my daughter. Her name is Claire Harrison. Like, do you know her? And he says, oh yeah, she's in a sorority with my girlfriend. So yeah, you should go to the sorority house and check for her there. She might just be running late. Which is a hell of a lot of luck there, because if you're just totally. standing there at like a college campus and you grab grab the first any random, student, yeah. <laughs> do you know this person? Oh yeah, totally. I know exactly who that is. Doesn't he get the guy because one of the kids that the guy was watching pelts him with a snowball too or something? Yeah. So we cut to the Santa meet and greet that the girls are doing, and this scene to me kind of cracks me up because this is exactly what you think it is. It's these sorority college kids doing this meet and greet and they could just give less of a shit that they're doing it and the boyfriend guy that's playing the Santa Claus is just huffing and whining and like when the fuck are we gonna be done with this god damn it these fucking kids like huffing cuss words yeah right in front of the kids and I love that like Barb Margaret Kidder is just letting this little kid just drink right from her cup she's just hitting booze and letting this little kid drink and just it's fucking wild and at one point she like looks at the kid she's just like oh shit I got you sauced didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she says, like, this little bugger's snoggered. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but we see them there at the Santa meet and greet, right? So all the girls are kind of there doing 
that. Mr. Harrison shows up at the sorority house, and of course, none of them are there, because they're all at the meet and greet, but the house mother, Mrs. McHenry, is still there, and Mr. Harrison's asking, like, hey, can I look around? Can I go up to her room? And Miss McHenry's at this point, she's just like, look, she's probably at the meet and greet thing. That's where they all are. It's totally normal for college girls to kind of come and go, dot, dot, dot. Like, she might be with a boyfriend. She might be hanging out somewhere else. And Mr. Harrison's wandering around her room and looking at, like, the posters on her wall, and he's kind of shocked because, you know, his innocent daughter is now, like, a college student. So she has, like, a hippie love poster up with, you know, an exposed butt on it, which Miss McHenry leans against the wall and puts her hand, like, right over the butt and just stuff like that, where he's thumbing through her private stuff and just kind of shocked that his daughter is kind of wild. And there's a lot of moments, too, of her whispering under her breath or behind his back of just being like, you gotta stick up your ass and flipping him off because he's being, like, uppity. Yeah, you know, she basically just tells him, like, look, she's probably somewhere, it's it's fine. Like, it's normal for college girls to kind of come and go, like, don't worry about it, whatever. So, while this is going on, Jess goes to meet her boyfriend, Peter. And Peter is the guy that bumps into Mr. Harrison, the father, earlier. And he's a, like, super fucking high-strung music student. When we see him, he is banging on a fucking piano, playing this modern bang, 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 bang kind of bullshit. He is played by Kier Delia, who was in David and Lisa, and most well-known for 2001 A Space Odyssey. He's fucking David. Um, but he was also in 2010, the sequel as well. Um, the role was originally offered to Malcolm McDowell, which, again, what a fucking wild what-if. Yeah, that would have been wild. But, I mean, this is a pretty wild casting, too. Yeah. Because I recognized him immediately. I didn't know his name, but, yeah, as soon as I looked him up, I was like, oh, yeah, this is totally the Space Odyssey guy. So Jess goes to meet her boyfriend, Peter, and she drops the bomb on him that she is pregnant. And that she is planning on getting an abortion. She's at a point in her life where she can't handle that and she can't hang up everything that's going on for this. And Peter immediately gets pissy about it, you know, and they start having a conversation about what should we do and blah, blah, blah. And he basically threatens her a little bit saying like, you know, you're going to keep this kid. You're going to do what I say and blah, blah, blah. And we'll talk about it later. Very much in a like controlling, you're going to do what I tell you kind of way. So he already kind of comes across as this controlling slightly unhinged unstable individual like that's the best yeah. way I can kind of put it for right now at least I mean it's it is apparent here in this scene but it's not completely apparent yet the more and more you see of him the more and more he kind of unravels I guess you could say yeah we see him like at his performance and he's just pouring fucking sweat banging yeah. on this piano which that piano recital didn't sound very good to me but yeah not at all <laughs> which you know we then kind of cut to a scene after that where he destroys this piano where he's literally ripping the lid off the piano and smashing the inside with a mic stand and just banging the fuck out of it which sounds a lot like the music that we're kind of hearing underlying everything throughout this movie that dissonant smashing of piano chords and everything else which just keep in mind that like that's maybe some like foreshadowing right well and these scenes kind of happen sprinkled throughout the movie with him and that scene specifically where he's like bashing the piano basically 
basically inferring that he failed or whatever. And when the scene shifts into him doing that, it pretty much is the soundtrack shifting into that scene, which I thought was yeah. interesting. Like the soundtrack just carries over into that. It was interesting too in that first scene how he kept saying they had always talked about this and that they always were going to have kids. And it was obvious that this was his, his idea, idea mainly. And Claire was like, yeah, yeah. And so I think, again, this kind of shows more and more of his controlling nature. Yeah. And she does directly tell him, I can't completely hang my life up and everything I want to do and my ambitions just to do this for you, you know? Yeah. So it's a very interesting moment of discussion and like subplot for a movie like this at this time, for sure. At this point, Mr. Harrison shows up at the Santa meet and greet, sees that Claire is not there, and he and two of the other girls, Barb and Phyllis, that we've, you know, seen, they all go to the uh, police headquarters to basically, like, report Claire is missing. And the desk sergeant there, named Nash, just totally blows them off. He also kind of acts like Miss McHenry a little bit, where he's like, okay, whatever, like, college girl, y'all hadn't seen her since last night, she's probably just shacked up somewhere, who cares? And he just totally writes the whole thing off as them overreacting. And there's kind of a goofy scene where he's asking for contact information and the address and Barb gives him a fake phone number that's a sexual joke, which I had to look up and see exactly what, because I didn't get this joke. This was one of those, like, I am too young for this joke. But apparently back in the day, phone numbers used to have a no, like a letter prefix to them. Yeah, I, I looked the, up the same thing. Yeah, I didn't quite get this when I saw it, but she basically tells him that the prefix is F-E, fellatio 4900, and he's like, oh yeah, it's a new exchange, whatever, F-E, fellatio, and he <laughs> doesn't fucking get the joke. Nash, by the way, is played by Doug McGrath. He was in a lot of Clint Eastwood stuff, specifically. He was in Outlaw Josie Wales, The Gauntlet, Bronco Billy, Pale Rider. Horror-wise, he was also in the Twilight Zone movie and John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. His character specifically keeps coming back as this kind of incompetent, bumbling fuck-up of a cop who, yeah. like, just does not do his fucking job. Not only that, like, kind of blows off these girls specifically. Totally. Like, yeah. Doesn't take them seriously. Doesn't take, like, what they're telling him seriously. Even the other officers and his superiors, he still is just not taking the job seriously, which we've brought this up before in other episodes, I'm sure. But looking at real-life true crime stuff, this is something that happens so fucking often to an aggravating degree where serial killers and murderers and rapists and all these kind of people like could have been stopped earlier had police officers actually taken seriously what people were telling them or reporting and actually done the due diligence to like look into the thing. I mean shit, didn't Ted Bundy escape twice under police custody? Yeah, yeah. Because he was arrested for other reasons and when they were looking into him he just fucking escaped because of their incompetence. Yeah, and fucking Dahmer, same thing, one of his victims wandered out into the middle of the street, managed to get out of his apartment, still drugged and dazed with the fucking hole drilled in his skull. Asian boy running around the streets in underwear. Cops show up. What the fuck is going on? Ted Bundy wanders out. Or and Dahmer. Just, Dahmer. Dahmer, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh yeah, this is my boyfriend. And the cops are just like, uh, gross. We're not dealing with that. Y'all just go back inside. Bye. And then Dahmer fucking murders this kid. The amount of just what the fuck? How are y'all so bad at your jobs? Kind of bullshit. But it happens so often where like things get reported and they either get left in a pile on the desk and not looked at until years later or they don't connect the dots or even more frustratingly, 
different police precincts just not talking to each other and not communicating and like county to county and state to state no communication happening because either there's just no setup for that or it's just a weird pride thing of we're not sharing information with other people because we want to be the ones to catch this or crack this case or whatever so just the amount of y'all just all fucking communicate together maybe you could figure shit out which that kind of happens in this movie when we're introduced to John Saxon's character because he takes a piece of information he's given from another character that he takes seriously and kind of connects the dots back to this thing that these other girls reported with Nash and it all kind of comes together so well and Nash Nash too in this scene specifically this first one is very much along the lights uh, lines of oh uh sorority girls are airheads yeah airheads like they're freaking out over nothing kind of like I guess a little bit of casual sexism roped in with the type of people or the type of situation that's being reported I guess yeah yeah he's he's a fuck up throughout this entire thing yeah so they all get kind of upset that again he just kind of blows them off so Jess goes and finds Claire's boyfriend Chris who we like very briefly saw at the party but she goes to like where he's playing hockey you kind of get the sense like he's not necessarily a college student he's just somebody else that's kind of their age in town but she goes and finds him and like pulls him aside and says hey we can't find Claire is she with you you know have you seen her and he's like no what are you talking about and she tells him like well we haven't found her we haven't seen her since then we don't know where she's at she's clearly not with you we went to the police department and they totally like blew us off right and he gets pissed and it's like yeah fuck this let's go right now we're going back down to the station to get some answers Chris by the way is played by Art Hindle he was also in the invasion of the body snatchers from the 70s which is excellent. He's kind of the main star of David Cronenberg's The Brood. Um, And then he's also in The Void, which came out a couple of years ago. And it's kind of a fun, like, pastiche of horror stuff from other movies. It's fun enough. That's another interesting about, like, the entirety of this cast. Everybody in this cast has other horror credits. So this is kind of a good chunk of people that are well known in the genre for other stuff. Jess and Chris go back to the police station and he's pissed. Like he kind of busts the door open and is like, hey, you know, where the fuck is this guy? Why aren't y'all paying attention to this? I want to talk to somebody. What's going on? And in the next office, we see Lieutenant Fuller, who is played by John fucking Saxon. <laughs> so he is definitely a veteran of the genre. He was a teen heartthrob in the 50s and 60s with stuff like A Star is Born and Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation. But he's in fucking Enter the Dragon and Fast company and weird trash like Battle Beyond the Stars but he was also... Who was he in Enter the Dragon? Oh, he's like the main US CIA guy that's undercover there with Bruce Lee. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. He's also in Argento's Tenebrae and most notably he's in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. He's the father of What's-Her-Face and he shows back up in the third movie and again in New Nightmare but he's also in this fucking goofy movie called Hands of Steel and he was in From Dust Till Dawn as well. So he's he's been in the genre for a long time. He's in lots of action yeah, and exploitation yeah. stuff through the 70s and 80s. So he is in his office and he is being told by this woman that her daughter, Janice, also kind of seemingly vanished on her way home from school the previous day. And Janice is like a 12 or 13 year old little girl. Yeah, she's very young. So she was on her way back home from school and just never made it home. So now this mom is reporting her missing. So Chris and Jess show up and they're in the main like area of the police department yelling about that and John Saxon Lieutenant Fuller is hearing this other mother talk about her incident and so he kind of thinks like alright 
two girls missing within the same time period. Let's kind of look at this. And he chastises Nash a little bit for just blowing them off. We kind of cut to everybody later back at the sorority house sitting around eating dinner. So Mr. Harrison, Claire's father, the house mother, Miss McHenry, Jess, Chris, like everybody that's kind of involved at this point is all sitting around talking about like, what do we do next? And this is where Barb's drunkenness gets real dark. The, yeah. The darker, sadder turn. <laughs> because yeah. up till now, like she's just been like cracking jokes and doing crude, but kind of funny, humorous shit with the kid and the fellatio joke to Nash. But now it just goes on like a tangent of, I wanted to see these turtles fuck for three days. And so I went to the zoo and it just goes off the fucking deep end with her like going into kind of a weird drunk depression and basically uh calling everyone out to like yeah. kind of almost saying accusing mr harrison of thinking that she caused claire to disappear somehow yeah and for for yelling at claire like an argument with her the night before with yeah. the caller yeah. yeah and getting in his face and then finally they're like you need to go to bed yeah. you are drunk out of your minds so she goes upstairs sleep her drunk off Everybody else, in the meantime, decides that they're going to go to this nearby park where the little girl Janice disappeared, and they're going to join in the public search. So there's all these volunteers that are showing up there to look for the little girl. They figure, let's also go and maybe we can like find out more about Claire as well, see if anybody else there knows information. So they go to do that while Barb is upstairs sleeping, and this is when we cut to Peter after his recital thing, and it clearly didn't go well because he's smashing the shit out of his piano. The blood rage. Yeah. <laughs> and then we also see Miss McHenry. She is packing because she is going to go visit family for the holidays as well. So she's still in the middle of packing. The cab is downstairs blasting the horn and she's screaming like, just wait a minute, you dumb fuck. And as she's packing, she hears the cat. So again, Chekhov's cat, Claude. Well, and, and one of the little mini scenes that was kind of in between one of the earlier scenes was one of the flashes back to Claire's body in the attic and like the killer making weird noises. Yeah. It keeps cutting back and we keep seeing Claire's body still in the attic. And you kind of see like out this window and it's wild because it's one of those windows like at the very top, like an attic window. If anybody had just fucking stopped to look, they would have seen Claire sitting up there. Well, I I thought it was because the window was frosted or something. They probably couldn't. But yeah, there's one scene in specifically where it flashes to her body and the cat climbs up her lap a little bit and starts licking the plastic. Yeah. And that's pretty fucking unsettling. So, yeah, yeah, the cat's up there. The killer's up there. Like, So, the cat is kind of whining and Miss McHenry's looking all over for the cat, calling for the cat. But eventually, she, like, hears it, the cat, you know, meowing from the attic. So, she climbs up into the attic and she's kind of looking around in the darkness a little bit. And eventually, she looks around in the opposite way where she then sees Claire's body like sitting in the rocking chair with the plastic raptor on her head dead. And she starts freaking out right as the killer is like standing above her with this giant cargo hook on a rope. Yeah, which is what the fuck is that doing up there, by the way? Uh, I mean, I guess it would be for like getting heavy stuff yeah. in and out of the attic. There's a lot of random shit up there. Yeah. Why is this in a sorority girl's house? That and like what stuff is so heavy you have to have a hook and rope mechanism to get it down that would still fit through that tiny hole in the 
ceiling. It's not like there's a fucking couch up there that they would have been able to fit in and out that you need that hook for, right? But whatever. The killer heaves this fucking hook at Miss McHenry and it hooks her in the neck and yanks her up through the hole in the attic. And so she is now like hanging from this cargo hook, like up in the neck. Well, and there's a creepy moment when that all that's happening where the camera cuts back outside the attic and it's just her legs and her legs are like kicking and dangling yeah. and they get like sucked up into the attic and it cuts from her screaming to the cab driver guy at the front door banging on the front door yelling like hey are you coming out and he eventually just kind of says ah fuck it and leaves and the thing that's kind of creepy about this too is I think there's maybe one or two other times you might hear the killer before this like on a phone call or something but he makes animalistic noises as well as well as like changing the pitch of his voice almost to the point where it sometimes sounds like it's two people yeah. at once but one of the things is he kind of starts making sort of kind of like cat noises I wonder that like say if he killed the cat or the cat's not the one doing it what if he was the one who lured her up into the attic by acting like the yeah, cat potentially yeah we then go back to the park where everybody is searching for the little girl and somebody does come across the little girl's body we don't see the body we just see the reaction of the woman who finds the body and she is losing her mind screaming freaking out everybody runs over to where she's at and they find the body of this little girl it's implied that janice's body is super disfigured and everything and yeah so the only minor complaint i guess i have about this movie right after the scene where they discover the girl's little her body mr harrison and chris kind of disappear from the rest of this movie i don't think there's any other scenes with them is there yeah a little bit they kind of fade to the background a little bit Presumably, I think they are just at the police station hanging out. So Jess goes back to the sorority house right as the phone starts ringing again. So she picks it up and it's another weird, obscene phone call from, we can assume, the killer. Hello? Hello? Who is this? saying like Billy and talking about Agnes and all this other like weird cryptic bullshit. And like Agnes is maybe the mother like abusing Billy the kid. Yeah and there's no real like answer to any of that stuff which again the fucking remake goes super in depth as to like who all these people are and what the killer's talking about and like none of that's necessary. It's so much creepier just hearing this person like talk about these two weird people that you don't know who like who is Billy who is Agnes. It sounds like there might be more than one person talking on the phone but it's just this one person's like weird voice yeah that's so much creepier than having like actually go in and explain all that and it leaves it open-ended it leaves it up to you like what yeah. the killer saw about if there even is any deeper meaning because you could go one route of being like he's billy and agnes was his mother who abused him and that's why he's killing women or something or you could just be like no he's just fucking out of his mind <laughs> like, yeah just as she 
hangs it up. She's calling the police to basically say like, yo, I've been getting obscene phone calls. Like, what can we do about this? As she's on the phone with the police, somebody sneaks up behind her and you think it might be the killer. Like, sneaks down the stairs and puts a hand on her and surprises her and like scares the shit out of her. But it's Peter, her boyfriend, who fucking somehow snuck into the house and got in because the front door apparently has just been wide open. That's something that they bring up earlier that the front door is never fucking locked because it's broken. That's like the biggest Chekhov's gun in this entire movie. Yeah. So Peter like snuck into the house and apparently just been hanging out waiting for her, which again, fucking creeper controlling move, dude, to like show up at the sorority house and just be there waiting for her. Well, and he makes a comment too about the abortion, like as they kind of get in this little fight argument. Yeah, because he tells her that he is officially leaving the music conservatory. He's calling it fucking quits. And he is basically trying to talk her into like, we just need to get married. Let's just go get married now. Like, I'm going to drop all this music bullshit. I'm going to be devoted to you. Our child is going to need both of the parents and blah, blah, blah. And she's still just like, yo, no, that ain't happening. We are not getting married. I'm still getting an abortion. This is not happening. Chris and Phyllis and Mr. Harrison, they're all back at the police department after the search for the girl's body. And they kind of overhear, again, the desk clerk Nash fucking taking the phone call from Jess, where she's reporting the obscene phone calls. And they overhear what's going on. They kind of start connecting the dots, even though fucking Nash doesn't, again. Like, he's just like, wait, he has no idea. And so Mr. Harrison and Phyllis and Chris, they all go to Lieutenant Fuller, John Saxon, and say, hey, like, y'all were looking for this little girl who turned up dead. We're looking for our friend Claire, who is still missing. Now we have one of the other girls at the house calling and reporting obscene phone calls. Like, something's going on. This is all connected. And Fuller takes them seriously. He's like, cool, let's let's figure out what's going on. So Fuller goes out and, like, chastises Nash. And it's like, yeah, we'll get somebody over to the house. We're going to tap the phone. We'll get to the bottom of this. So as Peter is storming out of the sorority house, all pissy, because he just got done having this conversation with Jess about their child and their future plans and everything. That's when everybody shows back up at the house again. And it's, you know, Lieutenant Fuller and a guy from the phone company named Graham. And, you know, they bump into Peter and Peter is storming off in a huss. And Fuller kind of takes note of that. Yeah. You know, that this dude with a bad emotional state was here talking to one of the girls and storming out mad. Did Phyllis come back with Lieutenant Fuller? Yeah. As well? Yeah, they, they all yeah. arrived back at the house. So at this point, we see Fuller kind of investigating and he goes and looks at Claire's room and starts thumbing through all of her stuff and he's kind of filing away clues and bits and pieces of things in his head. Meanwhile, the phone company guy, Graham, is downstairs putting the bug on the phone. This is weird technical shit that I found kind of interesting, like how phone bugging and tracing calls kind of work because you always see that in movies where they're like, you got to keep the person on the line for us to get the call. You never see the bits and pieces of how that works on the back end and what they're actually doing. But And this movie actually makes an effort to show you. And it works because it's that countdown, like you're on a timer of like, we got to do it, we got to do it, we got to have And this guy is like literally racing around the telephone switch station trying to find where the call is coming from, right? But yeah, Graham, this telephone guy is played by Leslie Carlson, who I only bring up because he's been in lots of other like horror-related stuff, uh, specifically Cronenberg. He was in Videodrome and he was in The Dead Zone and The Fly. He was also in The Christmas Story. Uh, he was the fucking like tree salesman um, <laughs> that they haggle with, but they get the phone bugged up and Lieutenant Fuller is like, yo, we're going to head back to the station. I'm leaving one of my guys here to watch over the house. They're right there parked out front in the car. As he is leaving, we see Peter is still skulking 
skulking around in the fucking shadows outside the house. Like, he's across the street, hiding behind a tree, just, like, watching the house like a fucking creeper. We now have Phyllis and Jess back at the house. And they're kind of hanging out. They're buttoning down for the night. While they're downstairs, Barb has a fucking asthma attack. And we hear her, like, screaming. And it sounds like she's being strangled. Well, and it kind of looks almost like a night terror because... A little bit, yeah. It shows, like, what's kind of like the killer's point of view creeping up on her. And then she just can't breathe. And it kind of looks like she's sort of awake, but not really. And having this asthma attack. And yeah, and then, like you said, just rushes up there and grabs the inhaler and, like, gives it to her. Once Barb wakes up, she does kind of say, like... oh. I was having this terrible dream that somebody was in my bedroom and they were watching me. What? Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) So... Jess kind of tucks Barb away a little bit and she hears this group of kids downstairs like singing carols the front door. So she goes back downstairs and opens the front door to watch these kids all sit there and sing. Meanwhile, while she's distracted, the killer creeps down from the fucking attic and makes his way over to Barb's room, opens the door, goes in. Barb is laying there asleep. He grabs this glass unicorn statuette kind of thing. She's got like all these little like glass animals sitting beside her bed, but he grabs this unicorn with like a giant spiky horn and stabs the shit out of her in this really like artsy fartsy kind of montage. It's kind of art horror at this point. Yeah, while all the kids are downstairs and they're singing their carols and everything and the noise is kind of drowning out Barb's screaming and cries and everything while she's being stabbed. And the image of the killer in shadow with just his eyes highlight like he's really like maniacal kind of weirdly colored eyes with this unicorn glass spike thing held above his head is a really unsettling image for that to be like the last thing that you see laying in bed like suddenly like woken up is fucking terrifying well and it's it's another part of the juxtaposition of horror and christmas because yeah this is yet another scene where it keeps flashing back to the caroling and back upstairs to the killing and the whole time you're hearing the carolers as all this is happening and they're all children like i'd mentioned earlier there's just something unnaturally unsettling about that and it's silent night holy night i think is what they're singing yeah which i i don't know i just that song in particular it was a good choice for this whole scene yeah so right as the kids finish up one of the like chaperone moms runs over and it's like hey we all have to leave that little girl was just they found her body in the park like we have to get out of here we all got to go home sorry you know so she you know rounds up all these kids and they all leave and Jess then hears the phone ringing again so now the phone's bugged and once she picks up the phone and starts talking it's also going to ring the phone in Lieutenant Fuller's office so he can pick up and listen as well and then Graham is at the phone switch station thing and he will try to track down like where the call's coming from right so he literally is just running through like these racks and racks of wires and switches trying to find like where you know it's being activated so she picks up the phone and it's another again like weird voices and obscene shit but this is what you mentioned a second ago where he drops a specific line that peter said while they were arguing about the baby and getting married and the abortion and everything he specifically said you're treating this baby like a wart to be removed and that's the line that the killer like says over the phone to her so she knows like somehow like what the fuck this killer knows what i've been talking to my boyfriend about. So the killer hangs up, she hangs up, and it wasn't quite enough time for them to trace the call and figure out where it was coming from. Then, the phone rings again, and she picks
picks it up and it's Peter. And this time, like, he's actually, like, crying and kind of sobbing and why would you do this to me? And we have to figure this out and please, you know, listen to what I'm asking you. And he's dropping all this personal shit. And meanwhile, Fuller's back at the station. He's still listening in because the phone's going to ring back to his office every time. So he's listening now to Peter and Jess kind of reiterating some of the stuff that they talked about earlier. And he's kind of starting to put dots together in his head. And Peter's call is also hysterical. I mean, very different from the killers with the killers being just animalistic and completely insane. But there's still a lot of hysteria in Peter's phone call as well. Yeah. Just breaking down crying, saying borderline threatening, but also pathetic shit. Yeah. And Fuller talks to Jess after Peter's hung up because he's like on the line as well. And he kind of says like, hey, in that first phone call, there was a specific thing the killer said to you that you kind of had a pause about. And then your boyfriend just called and is crying to you about certain things. You mind telling me a little bit about what's going on? And she just kind of beats around the bush because she didn't want to like tell this police officer that she's pregnant and all this other personal shit going on, right? But he's already kind of maybe connecting some dots. So while this is all going on, we see Phyllis kind of getting ready for bed and she goes into Barb's room to check on her. And we literally just see the door shut as she like kind of screams and she's kind of murdered off screen a little bit. Basically see the door shut and that's that we know she's doomed. Which, weird side note, but I love when she goes to open up Barb's door. The wreath that's hanging on Barb's door just is decorated with a bunch of little like airplane sized alcohol bottles. Yeah, yeah, that was that was pretty funny. <laughs> so anyway, Jess then gets a third phone call in which again, like the killer kind of drops some hints that there's something weird going on between like this character named Billy and Agnes, like you were saying, and there's this weird kind of something maybe related to this killer is being discussed and he's maybe giving her some clues as to who he is, but that's never resolved. We don't know what's going on, which is why the killer sometimes is referred to as Billy, because we maybe think that the killer is kind of reiterating some things that happened when, like, he was a child, maybe. Well, and some of the earlier scenes, too, where it's showing his POV, it's almost like he's talking to the dead bodies of the women he's killed and calling them Agnes. Yeah. But again, it's all just so cryptic and inane that it's hard to tell. Yeah, but... Jess manages to kind of keep him talking long enough that they're able to finally trace the call and figure out where it's coming from. And at that point, Graham tells them like, hey, the call is coming from inside the fucking house. There's another line in the house that belongs to the house mother. It was like her separate phone. The call is coming from that line. So like, dun, dun, dun. The the call is like the killers of the house. You got to get out. Fuller tells again the bumbling fucking desk sergeant Nash to like call Jess, tell her to get out of the fucking house. And he's like, just just tell her just that. No questions. Tell her she needs to get out. She needs to leave, right? Because he thinks that she's maybe the only person at the house. Well, and he tells Nash specifically, whatever you do, get her out of the house, but whatever you do, do not tell her that the killer may be in the house. Yeah, exactly. And he tells Nash that specific thing. I don't care what she asks. Do not tell her that. Yeah. So Nash calls and tells Jess, hey, you need to leave the house. Just leave the house. Don't ask questions. Just leave the house. And and she keeps trying to say, like, 
the other girls are here. Like, Barb's here. Phyllis is here. I need to go get them. He's like, no, no, no. Don't worry about them. Just you need to get out of the house. And then she's like, no, I got to go get the other girls. And he says, the, the fucking killer's in the house. You got to leave. Like, the killer's in the house. Like, God damn it. Like you said, the one thing he was, like, not supposed to tell. one him. job, Nash. So at this point, she's just like, oh, shit. So she fucking ignores him entirely. Well, before you we, we, we go into those scenes, Nash, all you had to do was be like, uh, Detective Fuller is driving down your street right now. I think you need to go outside to wave him down. Wait outside just for him. Just something easy. Down. Yeah, yeah. Something easy like that. That's all you had to do. And in the meantime, is this before or after Fuller is also trying to contact the cop outside the house? So at this point, he is. And we discover that the cop that's supposed to be watching the house outside, we see him and he's kind of leaned back in his seat with his throat slashed open. And that's an interesting point that I'll get to later when we wrap up. There are kind of some theories that I have. Okay. But yeah. Keep that in mind that the cop outside, his throat is slashed and that's why he can't be reached. Yeah. So Jess at this point is like, you know what? Fuck it. My two sorority sisters are upstairs. I have to go get them. They're telling me I got to leave, but what the fuck ever. So she grabs the fire poker and she starts making her way upstairs little by little. And eventually she goes into Barb's room to check on her first and discovers both Barb and Phyllis's dead bodies laying up in the bed, blood all over them. And as she starts backing out of the room, she notices this fucking eyeball, this creepy goddamn eye watching her through the crack in the fucking door and realizes somebody is hiding behind the fucking door of the bedroom right there like inches from her and she stares this eye like is like stares right into this eye and it starts saying like weird creepy shit and she knows fuck this is the killer yeah, right there the killer is saying like the Billy Agnes shit again to her yeah and then all you see is that eye and this scene it's so right fucking here creepy. is the scariest scene in the movie I would say personally yeah this is the scariest scene because that one eyeball through the crack is such a haunting image with the fucking voice that this killer is making and the different changes and Billy and Agnes. This gave me chills like when I saw what was watching this movie. Yeah. And it's interesting too because when she sees the eyeball and he's talking to her, she I think backs up enough and slams the door into him to stun him and she starts like howling like an animal, like a wounded animal and then the howling turns into rage and yeah, that's when he's like making all these animalistic noises chasing her yeah so the killer then chases Jess through the house and in the editing and the cinematography in this scene's great because we are mostly watching her running and you just see brief glimpses of like you know the killer's like legs passing through a doorway or like a hand reaching out or whatever like you never actually see the killer full body you just see bits and pieces and like hints of him pursuing her there's a little mini jump scare like she comes down from the stairs and is running by the stairs down the hall the first floor hallway and the killer from the stairs grabs her hair for a second that's when you see his hand but that's all you get to see yeah this some intense shit so yeah. if we were, we're talking real life fears um with these movies this is like night stalker level someone's in your house and they're crazy enough that they can stay in one or two places for hours and not move and wait until you're at your most vulnerable to strike and that idea is so goddamn terrifying yeah that if you watch this movie under the right circumstances you will be checking your closets and under your bed for a while especially like if you leave for the day or everyone leaves the house for the day and yeah, yeah you're always going to be wondering in the back of your mind well it's highly unlikely but maybe but maybe 
Possibly, yeah. yeah. So Jess eventually makes her way down into the basement, bars the door, locks herself in as the like killer is smashing on the door behind her. So she kind of runs down into the basement and hides behind some pipes to where she's kind of out of sight a little bit. And it kind of gets quiet. And then she sees a figure kind of appear in the window of the basement, peeking in and calling out to her. And you see it's fucking Peter, her crazy boyfriend. And she, like, he's calling out to her and eventually he fucking smashes the window open and crawls in. And then we cut back to the police arriving at the house. As he enters the basement, he's acting weird. He's acting deranged and she's kind of hiding in the shadows, but he gets close enough to where he sees her yeah. and like she has a poker up and he says something like pseudo threatening like he is acting very uh psychotic he, he kind of reminded me a little bit in the scene of todd from fucking blood <laughs> rage yeah he's getting ready to pounce basically so like right as this is happening all the police screech up to the house on the street they all run in guns drawn lieutenant fuller and the police make their way to the basement and they hear jesse's screams like coming from the basement so they all make their way down there and find her like like passed out unconscious leaned up against the wall with Peter laying across her lap bloody and she's got a bloody pipe in her hand so we're to assume that she beat him to death with this pipe as he got close to her right we then cut to like her bedroom and Jess is laying in bed she's in shock she's passed out all these police are in there with her we see Chris and Mr. Harrison again they've arrived back at the house everybody is wandering around talking and like taking photos and writing reports. They, they find the other two girls' bodies, Barb and Phyllis, but they still don't fucking realize that Miss McHenry and Claire are, like, in the attic. Nobody is bothered to check up there, right? Yeah, which, shoddy police work, by the way, yeah, guys. Yeah, again. You would check the whole house. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. We hear voiceover of these police kind of all walking around talking, you know. Oh, yeah, it must have been the crazy boyfriend, and he was already kind of threatening her, and blah, 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 and it's all this relationship stuff, and, you know, he's clearly the one that did all this, and but it's fine now. She's in shock. We'll leave her to sleep. We're going to leave police officers here with her. You know, everything will be okay. The main group of police leave. Right as they're leaving, Mr. Harrison, like, suddenly just passes the fuck out. Like, just everything that's happening kind of overwhelms him. His daughter's still missing. He literally, like, passes the fuck out. So Chris and the police officer that's supposed to be staying with Jess through the night, they're both like, shit, like, we got to get this guy to the hospital. So they grab Mr. Harrison, leave the room, and shut the light off. And we see them taking Mr. Harrison out the front of the house, and there's still a police officer outside hanging out. Yeah, it's implying that they're leaving one officer, I guess, at the door outside. And mind you, like, Lieutenant Fuller goes from super cop for, like, most of this movie to, like, all right, it was the boyfriend. I'm out. Also incompetent in the last two minutes of this. Yep. So we just see the house in the darkness, in the snow, with the lights glowing around it. We then just start hearing heavy breathing again and the weird voice and then the phone starts ringing yeah and there there's even a scene where it shows the bodies of beauclair and the house mother like in the still upstairs still still upstairs yeah and boom cut to credits yeah just the credits it continually rings for 15 seconds and that's it so kind of going to my little theory here is yeah i want to hear what you what you had to think about this and i think i know where you're going because of all the people that we see killed he's the only male that's killed well not only that but I think that once the killer climbs up the ladder,
status and is in the attic. He stays in the house the entire movie. He never leaves the house. He barely leaves the second floor or the attic. He kills most of them there. Sure, yeah. I guess he had access. He was either climbing down to the house mother's phone and using it anytime, or there was a phone upstairs in the attic that he had access to to make all the phone calls. We do see him in the house mother's room on that phone. Yeah. During one of the calls, you're seeing his POV, and he's in that bedroom making a call from that phone. And he could have very easily killed, made the call, kill, made the call. Yeah. There were a lot of moments where the second floor, upper floors were barren. So I don't think he ever leaves the house. So you think Peter is possibly who killed the lookout cop? I think Peter killed the lookout cop, and I think Peter was either going to hurt or even kill Jess when he was going into the into the basement. Yeah. He's set up as a good red herring throughout the movie because, you know, you do hear like the killer on the phone drop the line that he was talking to her about earlier. He's clearly been weird and tense and distraught through the whole movie. Thematically, the music, the score of the movie just being like the harsh piano smashing, you know, kind of sound. That's the same sound that is happening, like you said, when he's smashing the piano, it all kind of bleeds together. So there's even subtle like psychological clues to make the audience think that he's the one that did it. And then obviously Fuller thinks he's the one that did it, you know? So the fact that, like you said, maybe he killed the outside cop and then was still going inside to harm Jess, just those two confluences of things happening. Yeah. So that that's a pretty good theory. Yeah. And again, yeah, because the killer never targets males and the only yeah. male killed in this movie is the outside cop where the killer almost makes it kind of like artistic, like where he kills them and like sets the bodies up in specific ways. The outside cop just has his throat slashed and is left there. Yeah. The only other outside death is the little girl Janice, but she was murdered the day before. So maybe he killed her. That could have been Peter or the killer. Like that could have been either Potentially, one. Potentially, yeah. But like, let's say it's the killer. I mean, he could have killed her in the park and then made his way to the sorority house where we see him enter that night. Yeah. Yeah. Or even if you wanted to like make it even more dark, that was just a random other killing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Lot, lots of killers going on in this town in Canada. That's what I think happened. I think Peter did go insane, killed that cop outside and was going inside. Yeah. To- Intended to hurt or kill her. Yeah. Yeah. To kill her. And I think even the killer might have been aware of that. That's why he backed off trying to break into the basement. Potentially. Yeah. So yeah, final thoughts in this movie. I personally love it. I think it's a classic. It's one that I like watching every holiday season. Great performances. Super fucking creepy. Great example of the slasher genre. But yeah, just stone cold classic, hands down. One of the grandfathers of a lot of horror tropes, different fears played upon. I mean, it is a cornucopia of fear and horror. A lot of real life stuff and a lot of more nightmarish scenarios. But I mean, like, again, 1974 horror movie uh, tackling abortion mm-hmm. tackling the, the descent I guess uh, like a mental breakdown of Peter and violence to children the little girl getting killed which granted you don't see her body but that almost yeah. made, made it more horrific just to see the reactions of everyone when they, when they find her body Barb's alcoholism and depression yep. yeah lots of heavy stuff going on we brought up Bundy and Ramirez and other serial killers but I mean this was before a lot of them were even captured and what happened was well known yeah it was preying on a lot of the stuff that they were committing at the time that was in the public consciousness, just that fear of that stranger stalking you. Yeah, like it was very probably influenced from all that real life stuff that people were terrified of at the time. And and a lot of the common fears that we've discussed on the show before, like, you know, a place of comfort being invaded or uh, when you're at your most vulnerable and being stalked by something or uh, your home being invaded. We brought up that there are so many elements of Scream, The Stranger, 
Predators and other horror movies that this movie years before they were made seemed to tackle. And yeah. granted, it's I'm not saying like this, it reinvents the wheel, but it didn't invent the wheel. I mean, obviously you have Psycho and even stuff before that, like murder mystery novels. But this is real early in the timeline otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think in your opinion is the, in terms of when I think slasher, I don't think Psycho because I think Psycho leans more towards psychological horror. In your mind, like what's the first slasher movie well, or what? Psycho. I mean, I think that's you probably think so? like the most clear cut modern example of a slasher movie. Gotcha. That movie was very influenced by the Ed Gein murders. So that was kind of the first major instance of like that real life stuff bleeding into the art form and doing so in a legitimized way. I mean, this was Hitchcock, you know, so this wasn't like some movie that snuck under the radar for years and years. This was fucking Hitchcock putting out this movie, you know, so I, th- I think that is probably the first slasher subgenre movie that we can really put a pin in definitively, even if it doesn't quite have some of the developed tropes that we get later. Right. I guess I should rephrase my question then. What do you think is like the first 70s, 80s slasher, like when you think of slasher movies? Oh, me personally, this movie. I mean, I know yeah. that there was stuff like Bucket of Blood before this, not Bucket of Blood, but um, A Bay of Blood, but to me, this is the proto-slasher. I yeah. think of like Halloween as being the first big staple cultural phenomenon really definitively set off the slasher boom. This is the one that actually did it before then. Yeah. So to me, like this is the proto-slasher for sure. I'm sure there's deep cuts that are like technically before this that kind of in my mind too, I feel like this is in terms of popularity and just being well made and handling the tropes well. Well, this isn't just the one trope. This isn't just a holiday horror, a killer calling from in the house, a POV like serial killer. This is all of those tropes rolled into one thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why this movie stands out because it is so many of these staple things definitively in one movie. And I know I said this during Blood Rage. I guess the thing that was missing there was the killer not looking iconic at all or yeah, not wearing a mask not or dressed as Santa Claus. This killer, you don't even see the fucking person except for like the eye and the hand. Yeah. Like, whereas Blood Rage is kind of a goddamn mess. This movie is, I'd argue, maybe near masterpiece as yeah. far as a slasher movie goes. Yeah, it's so well put together. The performances are great. The writing is great. The directing is great. Like, just the way that this movie is crafted and assembled is so pitch perfect. Like I said, it's it's definitely one that I love watching this time of the year, every year. At the end of the day, it's a scary movie. This is, what, 45 years old? Yeah. It still scared the shit out of me. Yep. It's definitely. scary. It's good, but it is fucking scary. Yeah. So, glad you uh, dipped your toes in with this one, because it's just going to kind of get more intense from here going forward. So, have fun, Derek. Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's it for this week's episode. We are Watch If You Dare, the podcast. And you can find us on social media as Watch If You Dare on Facebook, Twitter, etc. And we are also on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. And Spotify. And Spotify. <laughs> and once again, please shop on Nightmare Threads and using our coupon code Watch If You Dare to save 10%. And yep, yep. once again, thank you to your brother, Jesse, for the bumps. By the way, his season of Spoop Bump, still so good. Yep. All, all the bumps that he's made for our show. Check out all his music and stuff at like, uh, he's at Party 
Party Gator, Possums. What am I missing? Other music projects he's on? Yeah, Party Gator, Opossums, Fuck Phil Bryant. But yeah, just all of his stuff is kind of all linked together. So definitely check him out. But yeah, beyond that, that's pretty much it. Do we have any final thoughts for the holidays before the new year? This will be the last episode before the beginning of the new year, I guess. So goodbye 2019. Hello 2020, I guess. If only the hitchhiker and Texas Chainsaw also was calling Sally and the call was coming from inside the house. <laughs>